2: The first book in the story career of one of the most influential conservative legal scholars and philosophers of our day is the focus of an upcoming conference in Washington, DC. Making Men Moral 1993 is the book and Robert P. George is the man behind it. Princeton professor of jurisprudence, bioethicist and pro-life and civil liberties champion. Scheduled speakers include some of the most important thinkers on social conservatism and legal thought of the generations he has molded, plus many of his peers and George himself. This conference is our focus for today. As the founder and director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University since 2000, George has provided has provided a model for a slew of similar programs, centers, and institutes throughout American academia and abroad. He is also a noted public speaker, often in partnership with his good friend, the African-American scholar, Cornel West. Because of George's outside role in public discussion of moral issues and his unique position as a stalwart Christian voice and admired scholar in the heavily secular academe of our time, rather than interview the author of a book today, I will be chatting with one of the organizers of Making Men Moral, 30th Anniversary Conference. This event is co-sponsored by the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, and the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition at Catholic University. And luckily for those unable to attend in person the event at AEI in Washington, D.C., Thursday, November 30th, 2023, 12 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and Friday, December 1st, 2023, 9 a.m. to 5.15 p.m. Eastern Time, they can register to follow the proceedings online for free. This is a welcome opportunity to learn about one of the most important books in the fields of moral philosophy, the philosophy of law, and natural law of the last 30 years. For decades, George's Making Men Moral, Civil Liberties, and Public Morality has been the go-to text for legal scholars, political theorists, philosophers, and educated readers who want to grasp what types of human vice and folly can be legitimately regulated, what the relationship is between morals, legislation, and freedom, what is owed by the individual to the ordering of society, and what falls under the protection of privacy or or basic civil liberties legal regimes. Given the rise in the decades since its publication of such social ills as rampant and increasingly public drug use, abortion tourism, and an ever-expanding plague of libertarianism that is hardly distinguishable from libertinism, the case George makes in the book for the acceptability of and needs for moral legislation has become ever more relevant. It is, moreover, a powerful argument against the curtailment of free speech and religious religious freedom that would be the ultimate result of the concept of neutrality in the public square, as advocated by John Rawls. The book is a masterwork of clear writing and a fair presentation of contrary arguments and genuinely but devastating rebuttals. Its workmanlike dissection of Rawlsian thinking and like schools of thought alone is worth the price of the book and the time devoted to reading it, and hearing major scholars discuss its impact on their own intellectual development and teaching will be enlightening and entertaining. The conference features leading lights in the conservative legal firmament, such as our guest today. J. Joel Alasea, an associate professor at the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America, Sharif Gurgis, Melissa, Melissa Mochella, and Professor George himself. It will also feature scholars in the fields of theology and religious learning, such as Andrew T. Walker, bioethicists and legal scholars such as O. Carter Snead, luminaries in the field of natural law like Hadley Arcus, journalists such as Timothy P. Carney and Alexandra De Sanctis, and notable social scientists such as Mark Regnerus and W. Bradford Wilcox. The first day of the two-day conference will feature an interview of George by his fellow intellectual, uh, public intellectual and former student, Ryan T. Anderson. Our guest today, Professor Alisea will not only open the conference, but will participate in a panel discussion entitled Making Men Moral and Constitutional Interpretation, the title of which nicely encapsulates two of the many roles Robert P. George serves in the public sphere. George is both a powerful moral voice and a skillful, much-loved professor at Princeton, where he teaches a famous course on constitutional interpretation, the lectures of which were recorded and are available free online. Let's hear from Professor alisea Hello everyone, my name is Hope G. Lehman and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with J. Joel Alasea, one of the organizers of Making Men Moral, 30th anniversary conference to be held in Washington, D.C. Thursday, November 30th and Friday, December 1st, 2023. Thank you for joining us today, Joel.
1: My pleasure, Hope. Um, I'm very glad to be here.
2: I'm very excited, and as you can tell, I'm very impressed by the book, and very excited to be attending the conference, which I'm glad to say I will be in person. But I want to encourage people to watch it online as well. Let's start with your personal connection to Robert P. George. When did you first encounter Professor George and his book, Making Men Moral? What was his What was his impact personally as a professor on you, and what was the book What was the impact of the book on your thinking?
1: Oh well, I first met Professor George when I was a, a freshman uh, at Princeton, and uh, was immediately uh, struck uh, and impressed by uh, by him and and the the arguments that he mustered on on behalf of positions that were extremely controversial when I was in college and remain controversial to this day um, relating to public morality uh, and I ended up taking a couple of courses well actually more than a couple of courses with him at Princeton over my four years there uh, and he had a tremendous influence on me intellectually and and otherwise. Uh, really molding me as a as a scholar and as uh, and at that time as a student. Uh, and his book, Making Men Moral, I didn't encounter. terms, I didn't read it until uh, years after having first met him. I, I when I did get around to reading it, um, I recognized a lot of those arguments as arguments that I had encountered earlier through courses with him and uh, in public. Fora where he had spoken, uh, and so the the arguments were familiar, even though I had never actually picked up the book until you know probably close towards the end of college or maybe in early law school. Uh, and the book has has I think had a huge impact on the discourse on civil liberties and public morality since it was published, and certainly influenced my thinking.
2: Well, he must have been a very effective teacher because you're very young to be an associate professor. I would say so. <laughs> um, <laughs> Professor George, uh, before he got to know you, he was he was a young assistant professor himself struggling to get I mean, not struggling, he got tenure. Quite soon in his career, but like uh, like many young scholars, he had to make his mark. And this book was the principal right. work of scholarship. So, and as we know, the book was is a conservative view or a, a at least a frontal challenge to the liberal view of civil liberties and public morality, what wh- was then dominant and is, is become increasingly dominant in academia. Um, Professor George has stated in several public appearances that some of his biggest supporters over the years, such as Professor Marion Glendon of Harvard, warned him that publishing the book was a suicidal move, but he did it anyway. Anyway, was it crazy for him to do that or did it make him? How did he get tenure anyway, even though the conservative, the the Princeton faculty at that time probably was very, very liberal and not terribly conservative friendly?
1: Well, I think that uh, it might very well have been um, at the time. uh, Imprudent, Uh, and yet (laughs) and yet it did have exactly the effect you described in that it uh, it made his career. And I think that just speaks to the exceptional quality, not only of the book, but of Professor George himself. Uh, in that in the hands of um a less rigorous, less skillful scholar, uh, arguments like the ones that he presents in his book might very well have uh, doomed somebody's career because of how controversial they were.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um but because but precisely because he's such a rigorous thinker and presents the contrary arguments fairly and as sympathetically as possible before demonstrating why he thinks they're wrong and uh does so in a way that is charitable and good-natured but firm uh it it was very difficult for those who disagreed with the book to fault its quality uh it's clearly just a, a an outstanding work mm-hmm. and and him and, and you know professor george personally is somebody who he yeah, makes friends easily and is, is able to forge uh, connections with those who disagree with him uh, in good faith. Mm. I think those kinds of qualities are what have allowed him to uh, to excel throughout his career, notwithstanding the fact that he makes controversial arguments in favor of, of positions that many in the academy uh, strongly disagree with.
2: Yeah, I should make clear when I say it's a conservative book, I should say it's really not. It's a it's by it's a book by a conservative, but it's not a tendentious or ideologically based book at all. It's very fair. In fact, I think if 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 you if someone were new to it, they couldn't tell. Although I take that back. I mean, he does say at the beginning of the book, "This is where this is my position, and this is what I hope I will contribute to the discussion." But you're right; he does say he is. It's very good natured. In fact, I liked it. One line I wrote out loud in the book at one point. He says something like. Um, I love talking philosophy. I love talking about ideas with people. None of none of whom sometimes agree with what I'm saying, <laughs> which I thought was yeah, kind of cute. Is,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a common experience for him, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> to uh, to be speaking with people who strongly disagree with him. But I think that what you just said there, hope, is is really important. Um, to communicate about Professor George's uh career, um, and the effect that he has had on so many other scholars and especially his students in modeling Mm. uh both through the book and through his own conduct um how to engage in real scholarly discourse which is um with sympathy and 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 charity towards the arguments you're uh with which you're disagreeing uh with rigor in the presentation of your own arguments um but always in good faith Mm. um with those with whom you disagree and not uh and not uh, devolving into a kind of nasty or personal or kind of tendentious form of argumentation that unfortunately really characterizes so much of our discourse on these types of questions.
2: Mm. Well, speaking of of his collegial view of getting to the meat of someone's arguments, a large part of the book is uh, a critique of the thinking of John Rawls, the famous philosopher of Harvard. And could you tell us a little about John Rawls and why was he important and what did what was what was Robert George's particular beef with him, I should say, or 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 what was what did he think was the weak the main weakness of Rawls's arguments?
1: Sure. So uh, John Rawls is one of the most important uh, philosophers of the twentieth century. he He was a, a political philosopher who uh, whose two major works, A uh, Theory of Justice and Political Liberalism, together constitute, uh, a, a an argument for a particular understanding of the liberal political tradition and by liberal here i i don't mean uh you know the views of the democratic party right? i mean the the liberal political philosophical tradition that includes a whole range of figures and uh john rawls's presentation of liberalism and his justification for it uh became a dominant understanding of of liberalism in both the the legal academy, but the academy more broadly, uh, he, his his book, A Theory of Justice, uh, was the book that uh, everyone was reacting against or in favor of
2: mm. uh,
1: from its publication uh, in the 70s all the way through uh, to its reformulation in 1993 in his book, Political Liberalism. An interesting point there, by the way, that Political Liberalism, Rawls's second major work, was published the same year as uh, Making Men Moral. Um, So Professor George's book, Making Men Moral, is responding primarily to a theory of justice, but also to some subsequent work that Rawls had developed and that eventually he consolidated and refined in his book, Political Liberalism. But uh, Rawls sought to to justify liberalism, a liberal understanding of society and of government, um, based on ostensibly... uh, Neutral principles, principles that uh, did not appeal to any fundamental uh, or what he later came to call comprehensive doctrines. Uh, The whole point of his endeavor was to uh, produce liberalism without having to rely on uh, the kind of controversial uh, theories of the good uh, that underlie so much of political philosophy from Aristotle onwards. Um, and, you know, that attempt to produce a theory that uh, remained detached from comprehensive doctrines became, uh, or I should say, cashes out in a an approach to public discourse, how we ought to debate controversial questions mm-hmm. in, the, in the political sphere that excludes from the political sphere, or at least this is how Rawls is often interpreted, Uh, that it would exclude from the political sphere arguments rooted in uh, controversial conceptions of the good, like religion, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Professor George, in his book, Making Men Moral, pushes back against Rawlsianism as resting on a sort of false neutrality, as uh, smuggling in, not in a bad faith way, but just as implicitly actually relying on uh, controversial uh, assumptions and ideas of the human person and of the good, even as it disclaims doing so. Uh, and so he tried to show that really it is impossible to justify an approach to political theory or an approach to government um, without some resort to, to these basic conceptions of the good uh, or of the human person that are themselves controversial and uh, and morally fraught. Uh, and that that's fine, that 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 there's no problem with us just having to hash out those disagreements in an open and honest and charitable way, uh, relying on the arguments that we draw from uh, our own philosophical traditions or religious traditions, um, and putting those forward in a way that others can engage with. Uh, and that was really countercultural when he wrote that. In 1993, because of the way countercultural, at least within the academy, maybe not uh, among the American people, but certainly in the academy, it was very unusual to have such a forthright criticism, not only of Rawls, but a a forthright um, defense of uh, the view that government inevitably does and uh, in principle should uh, uh, take an interest in Development of public morality and the morality of its citizens.
2: Would it be fair to say that that George won the day in that Rawls is not is not really referred to much anymore? At least in the, I mean, as a as a as a political philosopher, at least in the the political discourse for the common man. For and also, does it seem that? Rawls's views that George exposed them as being rather barren and sterile and against diversity of thought, which is very big these days, and in a way that Robert George was a pioneer of the idea of diversity of views, not 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 restricting them to the sort of Unitarian liberal Episcopalianism that that Rawls, that Rawls seemed to advocate, even though he didn't want any that Rawls didn't did did not want an overtly religious view, but did is 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 George more relevant than Rawls or is that that's kind of biased because the whole conference is about it's a biased question. But is Rawls as salient to figure as he once was? That's
1: that's an interesting question. My own perception is that uh, Rawls's work has become less influential in the 21st century, um, in at least in the uh, in the parts of the academy outside the legal academy, outside of law professors. Mm. Uh, I do think that he continues to have significant influence on American constitutional theory. For some reason, there seems to be like a lag where American constitutional theorists still uh, cite Rawls a good deal and uh, employ his work more than those outside of the legal academy do. Uh, at least that's my perception. Uh, and I think that if that perception is accurate, um, and maybe, maybe it isn't, but if, if my perception of that is accurate, I think there might be any number of reasons why that is true. One is the criticisms of Rawls's work by people like Professor George and others. You know, Professor John Finnis, uh, Professor Joseph Raz, um, Michael Sandel. All of these figures came forward and criticized Rawls, uh, R- Rawls's work, I should say, and uh, and I think carried the argument and showed that it really was uh, an a a position that was not sustainable. So I think that was one reason. And I think another reason is that so much of Rawls's argument was based on, on a hope that we could forge agreement across deep disagreements by appealing to kind of common principles of justice that everyone should be able, every reasonable person should be able to endorse. And that might very well have seemed like a possibility. Um Uh, in the 80s and 90s when there was kind of this post-war post-cold war consent a a building post-war consensus and then in the 90s then this post-cold war consensus um on all sorts of matters i mean just think about the fact that uh uh, bill clinton a democratic president signed laws like the defense of marriage act Mm
0: -hmm. the religious
1: freedom restoration act um several criminal laws that today are are reviled on the left Mm -hmm. um there was a sort of post-Cold War moment of political, uh, if if not, there, there certainly wasn't total consensus, but there was more consensus on political matters than there is today. And I think the fact that we have become so polarized in our politics since then uh, has led some people who might have been sympathetic to Rawls to think, well, there's just no there's just no realistic way in which that we could forge uh, and what he called an overlapping consensus on principles of justice given how dramatically we disagree on fundamental questions. Uh, So I think it was a combination of both his arguments being shown to to have serious flaws on their own terms and that events, just historical events, uh, moved away from uh, the idea that there could be some sort of consensus across deep philosophical disagreement.
2: Yeah, it seems like the left. Uh, Rawls was very his one of his main aims was to establish a, a a public discourse of neutrality. And the left today is not particularly interested in being neutral at all. They're quite quite aggressive, or or the or the right too. They don't their neutrality doesn't seem to be a popular view. Um, you mentioned. I think that's wanna, right. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say I think that's right that that mm-hmm. that uh, the, the both on the left and the right uh, today. I don't think there is much interest in the idea of some sort of moral neutrality at least not in our public discourse on on fundamental questions of morality the left um and the right both make very strong moral arguments um and adopt controversial moral positions um just think of the debate we're having now over transgenderism
2: mm, uh, yes. the,
1: the left the left's position on that is not that you know the government ought to be morally neutral right the the, the left's position is that uh, transgenderism is is a, a new civil rights movement and that transgender ideology should be enforced through law right mm. uh, and that people ought to conform to uh, that ideology and the rights uh opposition to that is equally fervent and uh and and those on the right to seek to reflect their views in law because mm. they they perceive a, a, a really important moral question to be at stake uh, so I think you're right that you know that we Both sides have really just moved away from any notion of neutrality, which Professor George's book showed was actually impossible anyway to uh, to achieve.
2: Well, in a way, maybe I recommend that liberals and progressives read *Making Men Moral*, because their view is that everything is moral. That that climate change—I've I've seen posters and bumper stickers—and climate is a moral, a moral question, is a moral imperative, and and uh, we're giving moral rights and legal rights to rivers and so forth. And in a way, he he anticipated the the whole idea of everything is moral, just like the leftists look at everything is political. But uh, would you say that in a way he? He, he's saying moral issues must be discussed, because if you don't, then your own issues of everyone cannot be discussed or cannot be legislated.
1: Well, I think I think he would say I think one of the points he's making in the book is that um, you uh, legislature legislators are relying on moral judgment. Hmm. Uh, and even if they pur- purport to be acting neutrally on uh, on controversial moral questions, that's just smuggling in moral judgments you know implicitly right and again it doesn't have to be that they're doing so in bad faith it, it could be that they're they are not consciously in some cases they're not consciously aware in some cases that they are relying on controversial moral propositions but they are mm-hmm. um and part of what uh, professor george tried to do in the book was point out ways in which some of the most eminent philosophers of the 20th century who defended versions of some sort of moral neutrality. In law, were themselves relying on implicit moral considerations and judgments that uh, are themselves controversial, um, and that it it really is impossible to uh, construct a political theory or or uh, or a, a good society that doesn't uh, rely on some notion of
2: the good. Yes, I was going to say you mentioned Joseph Rez, and uh, is it Raz or Raz Joseph Rez?
1: I've heard both. I've heard both uh, of <laughs>
2: Well, that's good to know because that way I, I will mispronounce it or not or pronounce it correctly either way. But there's a whole chapter devoted to him in particular and his and his interesting view of of um, morality and perfectionism. I wonder if you could talk about the word perfectionism because that's used in the book quite a bit. What does that mean? And or is that too is that too that's too, I guess that's too broad a topic. That so.
1: <laughs> well the the book the book defends. Um... What Professor George calls a perfectionist understanding of uh, political philosophy in which uh, and and perfectionism, as as George understands it in the book, um, is an idea that uh, that law has a legitimate role in uh, in principle, at least in shaping public morality and in shaping uh, the morality of citizens uh, as against a sort of anti perfectionist view of political philosophy that would attempt to disclaim any legitimate role of the government in shaping public morals, uh, or at least a very minimal role for the government in shaping public morals. Um, and that's the that's really the debate at the heart of the book, is between perfectionism and anti-perfectionism. Um, Raz is an interesting figure because uh, he actually is a critic of many of the anti-perfectionist liberals that... Professor George is also criticizing the book and yet he ends up in a in a place uh in his own arguments that Professor George uh then proceeds to uh to criticize so they're allied in some areas uh, in the book uh and then uh on opposite sides in in other areas so they agree for example in criticizing a lot of what Rawls says um but then uh, as you said Professor George then has to devote a chapter to explaining why he nonetheless disagrees with
2: Raz. Well, it's a good example of a of a professor, young professor, gently criticizing his professor. That's a good lesson for you in your career with Professor George, perhaps. Um,
1: yes, and you know, um, I I uh, uh, I I don't think that I've ha- I've had any uh, writings yet where I've uh, 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 disagreed with something that Professor George has written. Um, uh, I do think that. Uh, my interpretation of Rawls's work uh, is it, there, there, it might be different than how Professor Georgia interpreted Rawls's work uh, on some points, um, but you know certainly not in uh, in the ultimate conclusion that um, I would reject Rawls's views for the same reasons that he would.
0: Well, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com slash system.
2: Speaking of speaking of your relations with Robert George, I'd like to mention that uh, you have worked as a as a co as a uh what uh, a Contributor to a recent you know, online colloquium about the uh, um, jurisprudence of Samuel Alito, and that was very interesting. And then I, and then you have also been a moderator or of of Robert P. George and William Galston. That's online. At, that was also at AEI, I believe. And that was a very very good interview. So I encourage listeners to to um, Google your name and Robert P. George and find links to those to those events and the, and the publications. Um, could you tell us about how how you came to organize the conference what was your was it your idea or did who who, who came up with the the 30 i know there was a, a previous i think it was either the 20th anniversary. i think it was the 20th anniversary there was another colloquium years ago about the on the 20th anniversary of the publication what was what was the origin of this conference
1: well i can tell you um what the origin was on my end uh which is that i was rereading part of the the book making men moral um maybe a year ago, a year and a half ago, I can't quite remember when, um, as part of my scholarship, I was just rereading part of it. And I just, out of curiosity, just kind of flipped through the front matter of the book and saw that it was published in 1993 and realized, oh, wow, uh, next year's the anniversary, uh, the 30th anniversary. That's a big deal. Mm. And since I'm the co director of the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition at, at Catholic University, uh, and since the book uh, bears directly on questions relating to the Catholic intellectual tradition and also uh, has relevance to constitutional theory, mm. uh, it seemed to me that my, uh, my program, which we call CIT for short, that CIT was a natural sponsor for a conference commemorating the book. Uh, and so I reached out to Professor George uh, about it and uh, found out that Uh, he had already been in in touch with Pepperdine about putting on a a conference relating to the 30th anniversary because he has a relationship with, with Pepperdine. Um, and eventually we just decided, well, why not just have a a, a co-sponsored event, um, a a conference with us and Pepperdine. And we brought in the ethics and public policy center where his former student, Ryan Anderson is -hmm. the president, uh, and, uh, then, uh, we came to AEI, and uh, Yuval Levin, who is a longtime friend of Professor George and of mine, um, uh, was uh, generous enough to agree to to host the conference at AEI and, and co-sponsor. Uh, so it's a four organization uh, effort here to to bring this this conference about, uh, and I think that in part because of the broad range of people we've brought together to organize the conference, and of course, because of Professor George's long and standing and many friendships, um, we've been able to, to also bring together a tremendous group of panelists. Um, I really do think that your listeners will uh, be impressed by the caliber of panels that we've assembled for this 30th anniversary conference. And I think that speaks to the importance of his work and of uh, his reputation in the field that so many outstanding scholars uh, were willing to serve as panelists for this conference
2: it really it really is an all-star panel when i saw that and i've linked on a link online to the blog post about the uh, where listeners can can view the the agenda and the speaker list it's just a really powerhouse group of people and a very good introduction to natural law thinking and morality in law and philosophy of law in general um i just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with j j j joel Alessia, one of the organizers of the making men moral conference the 30th making men moral 30th anniversary conference to be held in washington dc Thursday Thursday, November 30th and Friday, December 1st, 2023. And I'd, I'd like to ask you to talk about some of those, about some of those people that are appearing that, for example, uh, one of the things I want to mention that when you mention them like Ryan Anderson and and uh, yourself, you are a, a representative of academia and out and Ryan Anderson is representative of the world of think tanks, where Robert P. George is also very active. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting group of people throughout the intellectual world, not just academia. And I encourage listeners again to notice that. That's a very salient fact. Could you talk about some of some of the some of the notable speakers, for example, who was like Ryan Anderson or Daniel Mark or Melissa Mochella, for example, or or Shar- sharif Gergis? Right. And,
1: then, yeah. <laughs> and all the all the last ones that you just mentioned are all former students of Yeah, like I was, I was concentrating uh, on those.
2: But, yes, then it, but then uh, there are peers like Hadley Arcus, who's, who's who's senior to Robert P. George, and he was very much influenced influenced Robert P. George. I understand it, but it's it's really an, a multi generational group. I mean, it's a very very young 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 assistant professor type group, and then there's senior retired emeritus faculty. It's really it's really impressive, the scope of yes, it. Yes,
1: and yes, and I and also uh, a broad uh, range of areas of expertise and and scholarship. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. another point that we were hoping that the the schedule would bring out in that you know you have some panels that are focusing on constitutional theory like my Mm. panel Mm. you have some panels that are focused on social science
2: yeah
1: that's this that's the panel with mark regneris ian Rowe, and uh brad wilcox uh uh moderated by byron johnson
2: and those are very important scholars themselves i mean oh absolutely yeah
1: yeah yeah. Yeah, i mean several of the of these panelists for this conference are people who would normally be keynote speakers at conferences oh. um, and we're willing to to serve as panelists instead um, alongside other uh, outstanding scholars
2: and journalists um, and journalists as well like Ramesh Pranunu?
1: Prun- Pranunu, yeah, yeah. Uh, also a former student of yeah. uh, Professor Georgian and uh, the editor at uh, National Review magazine hmm. um, and a non-resident fellow at AI he's uh you know Ramesh is an unusual. A journalist in the degree of mastery that he has over uh, uh, questions of political philosophy. Mm. So the panel that he's moderating, for example, is called Making Men Morals Challenge to Liberalism. And that panel is really going to focus on uh, sort of what you and I started with, which is what was sort of the, uh, uh, the governing understanding of liberalism when the book was published especially Rawlsianism, and how did the book interact with and seek to uh, uh, call into question that understanding of liberalism? Uh, so that requires uh, real knowledge of the political philosophy literature at that time and mm. how Making Men Moral kind of fits into that. So Ramesh, as the moderator for that panel, I think is the perfect moderator for it. And he's really, uh, as I said, un- unusual in, in having that mastery as, as a journalist.
2: Hmm. I was going to say, you talk about having the mastery of political or basic political philosophy that, that affects society at large. And, for example, could you talk about um, Professor George is well known for his commitment to freedom of speech, for example. How will that how will that be discussed? How is it discussed in the book and who will address it at the conference?
1: Right. So he in his final chapter of the book, Professor George sketches out and he makes clear that it's just kind of a sketch. It's hmm. not. It's not meant to be a detailed um, analysis of various constitutional uh, civil liberties, but he does discuss free exercise of religion, free speech, um, freedom of the press. He goes through these foundational civil liberties uh, in the American context and across the world and tries to show how they could be justified and in what form they could be justified from within the natural law tradition. Or what he calls the central tradition um, in his book, and uh, tries to show that they need not rest on a sort of ostensibly morally neutral anti-perfectionist liberalism, but that rather one can be a natural law theorist uh, or a believer in in that in the natural law, and still arrive at the conclusion that freedom of speech is uh, is important and worthwhile and valuable. Uh, and the same is true of the free exercise of religion, that these can be justified from within a natural law framework. And that is the subject of a, a panel called Civil Liberties or Public Morality. Uh, and it'll also be part of our discussion in the Making Men Moral and Constitutional Interpretation panel. Both of those panels are the last two panels of the conference on December 1st.
2: I wonder if you could talk about your own panel, the the Making Men Moral and Constitutional Interpretation, that where 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 is where is making men moral is it assigned in constitutional law law school courses or where 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 does a where does a law student encounter it or does he or, or who is the readership these days is it it seems to be political scientists and philosophers and legal scholars and in my case general readers who who is the main the main readership who 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 who, who would benefit from going to the conference i guess i'm asking i know i would right but... so
1: so <laughs> yes uh, hopefully everyone. Um, The. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll address, I think there were two questions there. One is, you yeah. know, what about constitutional interpretation and its relationship to making men moral and, mm-hmm. and law schools and their relationship to making men moral? And then separately, like what, in general, like who who benefits from going to the conference? Um, the, the book does not purport to be a book about constitutional interpretation. And Professor George actually says that in the introduction mm-hmm. to the book. Um, but it has relevance for constitutional interpretation, both at the end of the book, the final chapter where he discusses the normative foundation, the moral foundation for some of our core civil liberties that are protected in in constitutional law. Um, But also, uh, as I I mentioned earlier, a lot of American constitutional theory has been influenced by Rawls and by the, the understanding of liberalism that Professor George criticizes in his book so there is an indirect relationship there between his criticisms of those philosophers like rawls and uh the influence that they've had on american constitutional theory uh that's a point that you know just that's really just kind of previewing my remarks so that's really what i'm going to focus on in the panel uh, uh uh on december 1st uh so but but because his influence uh, in the from the book on constitutional theory is indirect in that way, you actually don't end up encountering it very often in American law schools, mm. you end up encountering it more often uh, in college, if you, if you encounter it at all from, you know, uh, professors who are perhaps uh, less charitable than he is, and therefore maybe less willing to assign the book. Mm. But the but if you do encounter it from a fair minded professor it would probably be in college, or in graduate school, uh, in political philosophy, for example. Um, I think in terms of the audience for the book, though, um, and for this conference, I do want to stress that while we've been discussing uh, the book at, at this very high level of um, of abstraction, I think the book has direct relevance to some of the debates that are very prominent right now.
2: Oh, absolutely, among, uh, absolutely.
1: Right, among, especially among younger uh people like a lot of my peers and people younger than me there's a lot of fervor in in debating questions about free speech free exercise of religion how those interact with liberalism um and with the natural law tradition um we've seen movements in the last few years uh for example on the political right of some uh, uh especially as i said younger people uh being becoming very critical of liberalism, and not just Rawlsian liberalism, but really kind of the political philosophy of uh, that that tends to undergird American constitutionalism. Uh, and Professor George, who is also a critic of liberalism, um, provides an alternative an alternative way of thinking about uh, the the civil liberties that Americans hold dear. And uh, and of our approach to constitutional government, he provides an alternative way of thinking about that from within the natural law tradition in this book that, uh, that shows that you need not reject uh, uh, the American constitutional uh, the, the form of government or some of our core civil liberties if you are an, a believer in natural law and somebody who uh, rejects various forms of liberalism. So this debate that's going on right now among people about uh, to what extent one can be a skeptic of liberalism, as as it is understood in American public discourse today, and still be faithful to the American democratic experiment, that's a big debate that we see manifested in all sorts of ways in in our politics. Uh, And I think this book is even more relevant today in some ways than Mm -hmm. when it was originally published. Uh, precisely because it provides this alternative way of thinking about these problems, uh, compared to some other critics of liberalism who who tend to uh, uh, advocate a much more total rejection of uh, American constitutionalism and and civil liberties.
2: When you when you mention the young people being tired of liberalism and critical of it, do you mean? From the right and the left for example the catholic inter integralists and the and the and the progressive left who who, who is who is critical of of liberalism well i guess everyone everyone seems to be yeah who, who, I, I really, who represents I so. it anymore for example who who is is joe biden the last liberal or, or of that school or who would who would who who are they fighting against at this point or are they all in hiding are they all retired or they're all afraid of the progressive left and being canceled and so forth who is their target of, and who 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 are the who are the attackers and who are the targets I guess specifically if you can give some maybe one or two names
1: sure so I I, I think that um a lot of the uh skepticism of uh liberalism it, or I should I should say the skepticism of liberalism I think comes both from the left and the right in uh in our politics at the moment um there's a a skepticism of many kind of rule of law values uh, and principles that you see both on the left and on the right. I do think you see that in integralism, um, which is one example that you gave. I also think you see that in the way that the that the progressive left um, has talked about um, the Supreme Court, for example, over the last two to three years. Mm-hmm. As the court has become more originalist, um, the progressive left has started to attack the court in a way that um, undercuts any notion of uh, fidelity to rule of law values or judicial independence um, and, and has really uh, uh, called into question um, whether the court should remain sort of an independent institution. For The court packing, for example, uh, that's been floated is just a, an assault on uh, judicial independence and on some, on core rule of law principles. Um, and so I think there really is... Uh, skepticism on the left and the right right now about some some foundational principles of American constitutionalism and of the American Republic. Um, and what's important is that Professor George provides a natural law justification for some of those principles. I mean, he's not, it's not comprehensive. He's, he's focused on only a few civil liberties at the end of his book. Um, but he provides a natural law justification for and, and a framework for thinking about those questions. Uh, that doesn't require their their complete rejection, uh, the rejection of those rights and those principles, but rather a reformulation of their justifications.
2: Well, I've been a little remiss in assuming that our, our listeners know what natural law is, and at the risk of 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 reiterate, I, I ask most most of my interviewees, could you explain what natural law is? And they, but could you give us what your view of natural law is? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: sure. So. Um, Nat, the natural law tradition. Uh, when we talk about natural law, what we're talking about are uh, principles that allow us to decide what we ought to do in given situations. You know, in our day-to-day lives, we encounter all sorts of choices that we have to make about uh, what to do, how to pursue what we think is good, and we make these choices all the all the time. Sometimes without even really thinking about them, and. Natural law is uh, it's a set of principles uh, based in reason that guide human conduct about what we ought to do in order to live a life of fulfillment and happiness. Hmm. Um, to be truly happy, truly fulfilled is to live in accordance with these principles of the natural law. Uh, and I can say that that very high level of abstraction, um, but just to give you know a more concrete manifestation of it. Uh, so if, if you were to, um, uh, have to make a decision about whether to betray a good friend of yours, for example, in some way, uh, you might very well achieve some kind of immediate material good by betraying your friend, right? Um, like maybe you, some, the person's going to pay you some amount of money, uh, to do so. Uh, money is a material good that can be used for all sorts of, uh, things. It's an instrumental good um but acting in a way against the friendship of your friend betraying your friend um is to go against a a good that is inherently valuable for its own sake your friendship with that person is valuable quite apart from any instrumental value that it might have it's worth pursuing for its own sake you can understand the intelligibility of preserving that friendship and you can understand therefore what is bad about betraying that friendship acting contrary to the good of that friendship Uh, and you can understand all of that simply through reason right Um, uh, and through your own kind of moral intuition as you as you think about and reflect upon the good of friendship and the natural law tradition is is simply an explication of those rational principles of conduct uh, as you go about your day-to-day life making these choices about how to pursue the good and live a fulfilling life.
2: I think that's very helpful because people are, are resistant to the idea of there being every well, everything's relative and your good is not my good and so forth. But I think that the book makes very clear that there are certain moral precepts that you will you will be a better person. You will be happier if you do not take drugs and you do not uh, uh, or you just you conduct yourself a certain core of moral integrity that the book is very effective in that respect. And you you mentioned that that the the book has become ever more relevant. I think that's very true because as I read it, I kept, I live in uh, Oregon where the the ninth circuit has made it almost impossible to police cities. For example, that drug addiction, as we know in Portland, Oregon is just rampant and that their drag queen story hour is acceptable and so forth. And could you talk about some of the, 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 the real relevance of the book these days? Because as I, as I, as I say, as I read it, that I kept thinking, I've seen my own little town become increasingly less livable for children for example in the parks and that kind of thing where 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 public spaces are are just no longer safe and and pleasant and 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 could you talk about i guess the the point is that i'm trying to make is that moral laws the idea of moral laws seem prudish or 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 self-righteous or censorious but the book makes clear that some of them are about quality of life for the vast majority of people, and they're not cruel. They're not based on, they're not punitive, in other words. Could you talk about the humanity of the book a little bit, or am I, am I reading my own views into it?
1: No, I think that's a really important point, that um, if it is true that um, to act in certain ways is contrary to your good as a human being, then to point that out to you is to do you a favor
2: yeah.
1: right uh, if 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 what if the path you're on is actually a path that is destructive yeah. of your good and you're not a, and you are either not aware of that because you've never been educated about it or you're resistant to it because you've made some error of judgment some error of reasoning yeah. um then the person who points all that out to you and tries to convince you of the proper course to your own flourishing is your friend, right? That's not your enemy. That's somebody who's doing you a favor. Mm. Uh, and when the law steps in to educate its citizens in, in that way, the law is also assisting them to live a good life. Mm. Uh, and that might seem um, to some people like, um, uh in some way kind of condescending like well why should the law be directing my conduct in this way Hmm. well there are some uh uh vices um that could be particularly difficult for somebody to resist and that the law can step in to protect people from which will enable them to then make the correct judgment uh that they ought to refrain from engaging in those vices so like you know maybe gambling could be an example of that um uh, depending on one's view of the morality of gambling um uh certainly the the uh, uh, the epidemic of pornography in our culture mm-hmm. is, is an example of that where the law stepping in to uh, prevent people from uh, getting ensnared by vices um, is to do them a favor and not to, uh, do something that is contrary to their good actually enables them to live a good life that they might not otherwise be able to live um, if just left to their own devices. And the, key, and the key point that the book makes is that law is a teacher and will influence conduct mm. one way or the other. Mm. So to the extent that the law decides not to, for example, regulate pornography, uh, then the law is sending a signal that uh, pornography is generally uh, acceptable, mm. uh, and that will have an influence on how people who think about it as an issue mm-hmm. uh, and therefore lead them potentially into error. Now, that doesn't mean you have to prohibit all vices or uh, that the law has to take a position on all forms of conduct. And Frustridge is very clear about that in the book, mm-hmm. and tries to set, set forth some principles for thinking about in what circumstances should the law take a position and in what circumstances should it not. Uh, but it does mean that that there's nothing wrong in principle with the law taking a position on a contested moral question because to not do so is itself to send a moral message and uh, to potentially instruct people towards a behavior that could be destructive
2: yeah i was going to say in the chapter on on Roz that Joseph Rawls that uh, he, he, Robert George makes the point that Ross says well it's punitive and cruel to 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 regulate private behavior but uh that that he, he makes the point that while well, you regulate thousands of things by law why is it why is a moral law somehow objectionable whereas a law on bank robbery or or murder or larceny is 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 and there are they're also in way moral laws i mean we have to have a moral right. framework yeah uh well obviously the big event on the immediate horizon is the conference and i i'm looking forward to it i'm i'm, I'm looking forward also to your opening of the conference that'll be fun because it will be the fruit of of many months of work from you could you tell us <laughs> when you when you when you approached the speakers were they were they eager and did they know what they wanted to say and had been bottled up for years, or do they say, "Oh, I'll have to reread it and think about what I want to say"? Was there a, a sort of across-the-board reaction to what they what they were hoping to say, or did they did they ask did they did they pitch their ideas to you, or did you did you come up with a a, a a panel topic and then approach the speakers? I'm just curious about how conferences are organized.
1: We uh so the organizers of the conference came up with the panel topics that we wanted, and then we decided who would be good panelists for those topics, and uh, then we approached those uh prospective panelists and asked them to to sign on and really i almost every single one agreed and and to, from my recollection the only ones who didn't were, were people who had conflicts who immovable conflicts where they just could not make it um but otherwise it was almost universal um enthusiasm uh to participate in the conference uh some speakers i think have had long-running um uh either commentary on professor george's work or in some cases agreement um with his work and uh therefore i think we're we're pretty pretty clear in their own minds about what they would say
2: hmm. on
1: a given topic and then others i think uh, you know told me oh i'm going to have to go back and reread this i haven't read this in years but hmm. i'm eager to do so um hmm. and to see what what new thoughts i might have given the topic hmm. uh so i think that we will have some uh I think we'll have a mix of some people uh, giving remarks that might echo things they have said before. And then there will be some people who will give remarks that might be uh, new, uh, new comments on,
2: on the work. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing Andrew T. Walker's participation because he just published a book about Protestant reaction to the Catholic intellectual Robert P George and that book was really fascinating and many of these people the contributors to that book which I also which is also on the New Books Network is are featured in in your conference so that will be really a treat to see them elaborate and refer to what their study of, of their book and of of their contributions to that book so that'll be wonderful. Well, the, I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network is which is what are you working on now in addition uh-huh. to preparing for the conference?
1: Yeah, yes, um, I'm. I'm actually um, trying to finish uh, a Law Review article on the relevance of Cicero to American constitutional theory. Uh, he's been largely neglected in American constitutional theory literature, hmm. uh, but I think he's he actually has a lot to say and uh, a lot of relevance to debates within American constitutional theory. Uh, and and there's been this revival of interest in Cicero over the last 30 to 40 years hmm. in political philosophy after many decades of him having kind of fallen off uh, in terms of level of interest uh, among political philosophers. So there's been this revival in the area of political philosophy in Cicero, and that hasn't really carried over into American constitutional theory. As I was saying earlier, there's, American constitutional theory seems to have like this lag be- behind where political philosophy literature tends to be. So Rawls is still really influential in American constitutional theory, a little Mm -hmm. less influential in political philosophy. Cicero has become much more important in political philosophy, not at all influential in American constitutional theory. Uh, And my hope is to bring Cicero uh, into the constitutional theory conversation um, more than he has been.
2: Will that be a book or an article or both?
1: That'll just be a law review article. Oh, uh, okay. So the the currency of uh, uh, of scholarship in the legal academy is law review articles, oh, less so than books.
2: I should know that by now.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no reason you should. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it's a discipline that's more articles based than than book based. Hmm.
2: How do you account for the one last question, is on the subject, Cicero, How do you account for his the Renaissance in, in writing about him?
1: Um, I think there've been a number of reasons uh for that. Um, Mostly it's been because of a a handful of scholars who started making the argument that uh, Cicero made several distinctive contributions to political philosophy, because part of the reason why he had fallen out of favor was because he was viewed for a long time as simply derivative of the Greeks mm. and that he didn't really say much that was new, he was just kind of reformulating what Aristotle or Plato, especially Plato um, had said and that therefore he, he wasn't um, a distinctive thinker. And a lot of recent scholarship has shown that that is just simply not true, that he made many contributions to constitutional and political theory um, that were departures um, or at least uh, additions and important additions to ancient Greek political and constitutional thought. Um, and so I, th- I think it really does come down to just a few scholars having done the work of thinking through and studying closely his texts, Cicero's texts, and being able to uh, demonstrate that he he's a much more important and novel thinker than people give him credit for.
2: Well, speaking of novel and and important thinkers... The conference is about Robert P. George and and his acolytes and impressive students such as yourself. And I just want to thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Jay Joel Alissa, one of the organizers of the Macon Memorial 30th Anniversary Conference. And thank you, listeners, and thank you, Joel. Goodbye.
1: Thank you, Hope. I, it was my pleasure to join you, and I really do hope that your listeners uh, will register for the conference and and watch the live stream uh, or watch the recording subsequently. I think it's going to be a terrific discussion all throughout and the, there will be a lot of substance for them to reflect on and uh and conversation that has direct relevance to debates going on today
2: oh good there will be a record the recording will be archived and they can view it even if they can't attend or see view it yes. live oh wonderful yes. that's that's I'm happy to hear that that's wonderful because this this will be posted online and people can view it at their leisure well that's great so thank you very much and thank you everyone bye- bye Thank you.